Hey everyone, we're back for another episode of In Case You Missed It. And well, today we wanted to cover a little bit about what's happening in the recent news. In case you haven't heard, we had the tragic death of the former prime minister of Japan. And I think it's something that we really wanted to cover because of just how convoluted it was and how also a lot of media outlets were not necessarily presenting the background of what was happening in Japan. So I think just before we really get started, I think Donovan wanted to give us a little bit of a synopsis of what actually went on in Japan and a little bit about the death of Shinto Abe. Yeah, so this was a, a big news story for me. Uh, I was in COVID isolation, um, quarantine, so not much to do other than read the news. Um, and so I woke up and I saw Shinzo Abe had died. Um, and so what, what specifically had occurred is that there's been a Japanese election that, um, you know, because he, uh, um, that he had been out campaigning for his party to, and he was giving a speech. It was a kind of a last minute arranged campaign stuff. Uh, and so he was giving the speech and then uh, while well, it's spent, a gunman approached him. Uh, he was shot. The gunman fled the scene, um, attempted to flee the scene and then was apprehended. Uh, and so at, for a while, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of information being given out about the motive. It was kind of vague, <coughs> excuse me, that this person had believe, had a grudge against the group he believed uh, Shinzo Abe to be connected to. That was the, uh, what the Japanese police put out officially for a while. And then it's now come out that that group is something called the Unification Church, uh, which of course has distanced itself from like the events described um, that the gunman cited as his reasons for the assassination. But in general, what happened was there, there wasn't super strict security at this event. It was very, you know, kind of hastily scheduled in Japan, as, as we'll talk about a little bit later, doesn't typically have as much security at these events as we have in America. But even for Japan, this was a kind of lightly protected event. And unfortunately, this gunman who had this grudge was able to, with a homemade weapon, go and kill the former prime minister. Yeah, and just like an extension onto what Donovan was talking about, just like the motives of the um, of the killer, it was really interesting because he sought like the former prime minister was like somewhat upholding this church or at least help the church get more into power, and also the killer's mother was part of this church for many many years, so it was just like this constant presence in his family life. And it felt like it was just like dominating him and in a really, really bad way. There's not really much more described about this because we just don't know the true motives of the killer beyond just like this complete hatred for this group. But it was just seen like this group was just constantly around him, either in the form of the, this prime minister like promoting it in his eyes or his mother just being part of it. So kind of just setting that in stone was really important just to get like a little bit more of like his just intentions in the situation and why that might have been a problem for him or just just moreover just setting the scene for what happened but this raises like a bigger question of what exactly went wrong in Japan, right? Like, why was a former prime minister able to get shot so easily? And why was it using a homemade weapon? So in case you don't know, Japan's 
gun laws are some of the strictest in the entire world. They're very, very extensive. And there's almost 13 steps that one has to go through in order to acquire a firearm. So it not only starts off with class, but they also have to take a written exam. So every Japanese citizen that wants to go ahead and get a firearm not only has to pass these classes, these exams, but also has to be mentally fit, which is given through a doctor's note. But not only that, this process takes over multiple months. So even if a person applies for a firearm, they're not going to be able to get a firearm for a very, very long time. And these steps are also followed by tra like day training classes, certifications, and you have to buy a gun safe and everything. So there's just a whole lot of safety security measures that are in place that make Japanese gun laws really, really extensive. And that's the current situation that's governing Japan, right? They've had a history of this, which all also started back when you look at the basis of uh, their fire and sword arm possession control law, which was enacted in 1946. Because of this law and because of its implications on modern gun law, we see less than 10 deaths by firearms per year. And most of those deaths can be attributed to the Yakuza. Yeah, Japan overall has one of the lowest murder rates in the world. Uh, and obviously, you know, even when you look at murders committed with other weapons uh, and crime in general in the country, you see that it's very low. Um, mm -hmm. But that's like a larger conversation that, that is being had about how much is this strict gun ownership law responsible for the overall low murder rate? Uh, and the evidence clearly shows that it's part of the reason, but it can't fully explain it. And it also presents some interesting questions about like Japan culturally accepts a really strict gun control regime. Does that also, you know, affect other, you know, does that cultural basis for that able to have these laws also, you know, affect the murder rate as well? But the, the chief point is, in, it's very hard to get a weapon in Japan. And you see that be, uh, these legal restrictions do make a difference both in the number of guns used and the total level of crime. Yeah, just like extending what Donovan's saying that like this culture factor really plays into like how hard it is to get a gun in Japan. And as a result, like just people are generally okay with how strict these firearm regulations are in the country. But touching back a little bit on this uh, fire and sword possession control law that I brought up, it was first adopted in 1958. Sorry for like the mess up, mix up in dates, but the, the law was in response to a 1946 regulation where the government basically banned all sort of gun ownership, right? And it wasn't until 1958 where they formally took that back and adopted a proper law, which was called the Firearm and Sword Possession Control. And what that did is that no one could possess a firearm, firearms, or sword or sword. So it's kind of repetitive, of course, just what, what the wording is, but it was really just trying to eliminate all forms of violent objects that anyone could use to commit any sort of crimes. So that was the basis for most of Japan's um, gun control laws and just violence control laws. Clearly, you haven't played enough of the game Clue, I use. Everyone knows the candlestick is the most dangerous weapon. <laughs> I have not played the game Clue, but in case any of our listeners have, they must get that joke a little bit better than me. <laughs> but 
Yeah. So going off of that, like Japan's gun regulations just kept on increasing since 1958. Just it was a virtually very like culturally accepted practice. And in 1995, there was an amendment to this firearm and sword possession control law, which criminalized firing a gun in the street park, train, store, any other venue used by a large number of people. So unless you were going to a firing range and like legally doing everything, everything was basically criminalized. So they were really trying to crack down on any sort of hand, like handheld gun use. And the same amendment also provided like mitigated sentences for people who like voluntarily surrendered illegal firearms to the government. So even if this was in the context of a crime, you would be forgiven if you did not create like a violent atmosphere when you were turning over your firearm, which is a really, really big thing because it just shows like how important it was for the Japanese culture to just stray away from this aspect of gun violence and really just provide this incentive even for criminals to turn in any sort of firearm. You don't see that sort of like situation really in the U.S. like it is sometimes like you can sometimes get like a reduced sentence, but it's really up to like judiciary discretion at the end of the day. But because Japan just has this codified in their laws, it's something I think really sets Japan apart from a lot of other countries. And kind of going from there in 2008, they added some more restrictions onto that where they basically made it so that um, shotguns were now starting to be regulated a little bit more and that like double-edged blades and daggers could also not be like you, like legally obtained or well, like they were made illegal and you had to go through a specific process of obtaining them because of some violence that they had in 2008. So that was kind of like the history leading up to it and since 2008 they really just haven't had a lot of like murder rates, a lot of crimes that you would see in the U.S., which is plagued by gun violence, and a lot of other countries, just like Japan's system and its culture around gun control, around gun violence, is just significantly different. So seeing something like Shinto, uh, Shinzo Abe's death coming from a homemade gun was really, really surprising because it's somewhat really difficult to get a gun in the first place. So I guess that's why it had to be a homemade weapon at the end of the day. Yeah, and like so, uh, there's a shock value uh, anytime a politician dies, but especially in Japan, it would be it would be an it's a, almost with only like ten gun deaths a year, it's almost a news story if anyone is killed, and to have it to be not just the prime minister, but the most powerful prime minister Japan has seen since its independence, that really explains why this was such a huge deal for Japan. And as as we're about to get into, um, you know the legacy of Shinzo Abe and the implications uh, his rule and now his death will have for Japan and the world are, are why this is such an important kind of news story to pay attention to. Yeah, and I think just like touching in a little bit more about like Shinzo Abe's death, I think it paints a really sad narrative at the end of the day because it was a very last minute stop that he decided to make to campaign a little bit more for his party and the issues that the party stood for. And it could have been completely avoided, but I know that the killer did come out and say that he was planning on like doing a future attack if he wasn't able to get the opportunity at this one. But I think moreover on top of that, just like the setting of the Japanese culture and the setting around Shinzo Abe not having 
a lot of security at the event could also be explained by just like the by a really powerful quote by that that was said by him in 2015. I think Donovan, you have the exact wording. Yeah, there is a back in 2015. There is a discussion in the Japanese Parliament about increasing the budget for security of public officials. And obviously, you know, the context of that is very different than what was going on, you know, this year in 2022. But Abe, uh, Prime Minister at the time, was against this budget increase for his security, um, saying that there were more important things, and then adding Japan is a safe country. Um, And obviously, um, maybe if that bill had passed, maybe if there's a higher budget, some things would be different. Maybe not. Um, but at the end of the day, security at this event was not it was insufficient uh, and it did cost Abe his life. Yeah. And we'll definitely touch a little bit more on the implications of that quote and moving forward, what is going to happen in Japan and maybe what like violence is going to see in the near future. And is there going to be more of a crackdown? But before we get into that, we really wanted to ch- like just touch on some of the legacy of Abe because He was one, like Donovan said, a very, very powerful prime minister for the country of Japan. And he had such a lasting impact on the country's future. And like, it's just like, just international status, which was such a big thing for Japan coming out of like, even like a recession time. It was just so, so important post 2008. Yeah, well, to set the background, even before 2008 for Japan, uh, so 1992 to 2002 is known as the lost decade in Japan because, you know, after the World War II with U.S. support, uh, as we all know, it, they became a leader in tech. Their, you know, anime became a big export to the world as well. Um, but in that time period, they, Japan was really struggling in those 10 years and their economy uh, was the same time, size in GDP in 2002 as it was in 1992. Uh, and living standards hadn't increased either. And people were really concerned that Japan was losing um, (laughs) its tech edge. And coming out of 2002, things were starting to get, there were some signs of growth for a little bit, but it just wasn't looking great for the country. And before the Great Recession, Japan was already in a recession. And then when the the global economy plummeted, there's plummeted even further. Uh, And so in the 20 years leading up to the election of Shinzo Abe uh, in 2012, um, Japan had seen 14 different prime ministers. It was very unstable time uh, and a very, you know, economically disappointing time. And so he and he ran on this idea of what came, became known as uh, Abenomics. Uh, and one of the big goals of that was to get inflation uh, to 2% because Japan had actually had negative inflation going on before where consumers weren't willing to spend money um, they were holding on to it. And so there wasn't consumer spending and the economy was kind of stagnating because people weren't going out and buying things and their companies were losing their global competitiveness. And so there was kind of the three arrows is what he, his party called them, which was they were going to do a flexible monetary policy, which basically means uh, devaluing their currency to try to boost exports is a big part of that. And, you know, do stuff with interest rates to try to increase inflation. Um, and then another part of it was Fiscal uh, monetary was monetary stimulus. So that's investing in infrastructure, investing in research, you know, putting government money into the economy. Uh, And the third was kind of structural reforms, which has to do with changing the regulatory and tax structure to try to be in the long term more conductive to growth. 
Uh, and the results of this were overall fairly positive. Inflation did increase. Increase. Um, there were there were disappointments and setbacks. Um, and there's you know there's as with almost any country scale economic policy, there's a lot of criticism. Some people say that some of the tax increases that went into it um, actually dampened economic growth by you know not because they were a disincentive for consumption. And, and the, the structural reforms component is the most controversial, but um, Abenomics overall is fairly popular and well appreciated in Japan. Uh, and generally is, it's, it's even for economics, you, econo economists, you don't think it was like the perfect solution. Yeah, Abe and his party did a good job of, because of getting Japan out of the stagnation they had been in and that going, you know, looking back. Yeah, and I think it's really important because this idea of negative inflation was really, really bad for Japan just because of like the Asian culture of just like monetary saving is so, so big. And if you have like a country that is like very, very <laughs> like, like, constantly following principles, very respectful of culture, and that idea of saving money is so ingrained in society, it definitely took a really, really big push. And it was really phenomenal that Abe was able to do that and have such a like shift in the economy in a country that is like very also like like by their principles, staying by like what they believe in and just like following these like ideals of what they've been raised in, in society. Yeah. And it, it definitely, you know, getting that consumer spending up helped, you know, get the economy just moving again. And it also helped their international companies, uh, like in the tech sectors, become, you know, this forced innovation sort of to their, their economic structure, helped them stay more competitive in the global scene. Um, but Abe's <laughs> biggest legacy really won't be uh, economics because, you know, that his, uh, well, we'll talk more about the, where things are going in the future later, but his bigger legacy will be about his foreign policy because he, he was really big into two things, um, internationalism and alliances, and also making Japan, uh, you know, strengthening its military presence as well. Um, so on the internationalism front, you know, he was very proud of getting Japan to host the 2020 slash 2021 Summer Olympics. Um, and, you know, my, one of my favorite things he ever did personally is when for the Rio Olympics closing ceremony, he appeared dressed as uh, Mario um, to advertise that the Olympics were coming to Japan. I was a big fan of that. Um, but kind of more substantially, he also tried to lead the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade agreement that, of course, the U.S. Uh, under the Trump administration withdrew from, but which still went into effect with the other countries still in it. He also, you know, uh, led the, to the creation of what's known as the Quad, which is the alliance between Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. And so those are a couple of his big sort of diplomatic accomplishments. And then on the military front, this is where it gets really interesting because Japan, um, under the U.S. approved constitution after World War II, was pacifist by law. They weren't allowed to have uh, a military that could, you know, they, they, had, they were able to have like a self-defense force but they were really limited in what they could do, uh, which Abe began to see as a problem when J with the rise of China, you know, Japan started having disputes with China over certain islands, as well as China was starting to seem aggressive towards countries like Taiwan. 
countries being a controversial word there, of course. Um, but and so that's kind of the, some of the big motivating factors for Abe wanting to actually change Japan's constitution to enable them to have a full military. Um, and, you know, that kind of push for a constitutional amendment was unsuccessful, but he did what uh, some people uh, considered his critics would call a little bit of a sneaky trick in that he instead passed the law reinterpreting the constitution to allow sort of a middle ground between the self-defense force and a full military. Um, and so st- was able to strengthen mo- his, the military that way. Uh, and he sought, you know, he and he sought a line, milita- he's really engaged in military training exercises with the United States and hoped to kind of grow Japan's military cooperation as well with South Korea and Taiwan. Um, though, of course, the Japan's relationship with South Korea remains complicated by some of the World War II disputes and atrocities. And Abe himself kind of made his own goals of a more diplomatic relationship more difficult by kind of refusing to acknowledge some of the harms Japan inflicted on South Korea during World War II. Though, in terms of the relationship with the U.S., he actually did apologize. Uh, he actually did became the first Japanese prime minister to visit Pearl Harbor um, after Obama became the first U.S. president to visit Hiroshima. So his legacy in terms of the World War II history is very complicated. Um, but despite the difficulties of that, still pushed forward with diplomacy and increasing Japan's military to face what he saw to be the threats of a rising China and Russia in the modern age. Modern age. And I think what really sets about, like, sets away Abe from a lot of other just, like, conservative politicians is that, I guess, once again, the the definite, like, the view of conservatives just varies country by country, but a lot of conservatism in the United States is also accompanied by a sense of isolationism, right? Like, we want to keep to ourselves, the United States is like self-sustaining, we don't need, like, quote-unquote allies, right? And something that Abe did that was very different was that sure he might have had some like conservative economic policies and stuff like that but at the same time he was very very big on these international relations which is what influenced a lot of his policies at the end of the day his demeanor and his willingness to get into the international community because he recognized how important it would be for Japan to still stay relevant on the international stage and the steps that he would have to take to repair some of the like views that Japan had been pushed into post-World War II. Mm-hmm. Which now I think kind of, uh, that's a pretty good, obviously, you know, you could talk a lot up for a very long time, much longer than like the five minutes I just did and what I usually added about Abe. But I think that's kind of enough background information to start to talk more about what Japan's going to look like going forward now that Abe is no longer well, he, was, he had already stepped down from prime minister to the health issues, but now that he is no longer alive at all, where, where Japan is going to head from here. Yeah, and I, I think it really sets the stage first in terms of just international relations. Like I said, like Abe really made sure to forge this like strong relationship and this international presence during his prime minister uh, position. And one of the things that was very, very like, powerful that even though the Biden administration has had its problems, one of the first things that the Biden administration did was send over the U.S. security general to visit 
the country and a time of mourning. And it's really interesting because during 9-11, the UK's like, I guess, representative came over and was standing with the US during this time of mourning. So it was really interesting seeing that shift over about how the US was willing to be there for Japan, even though the two have had a very complicated relationship in the past and how they were able to put aside an event like Pearl Harbor during this really, really important thing that was really like, having an impact on the Japanese nation. But even beyond that, looking a little bit more on the gun side of things and just like crime restriction and cracking down is gonna be definitely interesting seeing how Japan bolsters its just protection of its former prime ministers, of its politicians and how the gun landscape is gonna be changing. Is it gonna be getting even more restrictive in terms of how, it, how easily it is to get a hold of like objects that can make weapons, not necessarily guns itself, right? Because at the end of the day, the killer of Abe used a homemade shotgun rather than an actual gun. So maybe some of those laws might start extending over to some of the objects that he used, right? But moreover, that shift or like that, like that sense of safety that Abe established within the nation that Japan doesn't need all this security, we are a very safe place, might start to like unravel just because of the like really really tragic death of Abe in this situation it's just like if you can't take the former prime minister's word for it like we have to definitely like have it like change in policy yeah and with how strict their laws are currently there is not that much just that Japan could really do to crack that much more on guns but they are looking into it which is just how significant of a you know political issue this is and there's just so much shock in the country that some of that sense of safety is temporarily lost. Um, there's a good chance it comes back, but the, it, the country, I think, will for a long time think differently about it. And I think your security at Japanese political events is one of the first things that's already started to go up in like the aftermath of the election they just had. And it's not just Japan either. South Korea actually has started increasing security at a lot of events because they similarly are a fairly safe country um, that saw that they that their politicians, I guess, could be next. Um, but in the election that happened after this death, Abe's party uh, increased their majority. And so they now have really a lot of opportunities to pursue whatever parts of Abe's legacy they want to pursue and to really help to define that going forward with one big thing that might happen is that constitutional amendment he wanted, that definitely has a chance of actually being passed now, as well as on the economics front. Um, the new prime minister is somewhat more moderate, considered a little bit more to the left than Abe, and because he's more, he's a bigger fan of redistribution of wealth, but overall his policy is probably going to be pretty similar to Abenomics as it was under Abe. Um, and so now his party has a lot of opportunity to shape Japan's future. Yeah. And then just once again, like definitely going to be a restructuring of like, like not necessarily like policing as a whole, but at least policing at like such important events and how much like resources are distributed to former prime ministers, current prime minister, just any politician in that region. And that shift is just going to be really, really interesting seeing that like, is there going to be just more over policing in an area that has traditionally been like somewhat under police without a lot of consequences yeah 
So thank you guys for tuning in. Feel free to let us know if you had any suggestions or any comments or had any questions or concerns about some of the stuff that we said. We're more than happy to provide you with our information, like our sources of our information and just some further thoughts on the issue. But it was really nice being able to talk a little bit about Shinzo Abe and his legacy and what it just means for just the international community as a whole. Yep, and thanks for putting up with my occasional coughs. I am uh, recovering from COVID. Yeah, have a great day, guys. Bye.